Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, South Carolina 5th District Congressman Ralph Norman joins me to talk about the failed vote to impeach Mayorkas. The D.C. Circuit Court rules against President Trump on presidential immunity and double jeopardy. The South Carolina Senate sets medical marijuana for a special order vote. Iran moves closer to a nuclear weapon, and Iranian proxies continue their strikes against shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody who is uh, watching live on YouTube and also on Facebook Live. It's good to have you watching the program this morning. And for some of you may just be listening to the audio. Thank you for doing that. Be sure and uh, like and share the show on Facebook. And, of course, you'll be able to get the podcast downloaded about an hour after the show ends this morning. So I hope you'll follow me and leave me a good review. You know, um, we're gonna. We're, I started just a tad bit early this morning, about a minute early, simply because uh, we're going to have a call coming in here in just a few minutes from South Carolina Congressman Ralph Norman, uh, who represents the 5th District. He's going to be talking about the failed vote yesterday to impeach Mayorkas. We're going to get some kind of some inside information on that. We'll talk about the failed vote on the Israel package yesterday, two setbacks for um, the speaker yesterday, really, um, and and the GOP in these votes that were um, that, that failed and and really they should have known if you if you ask me they should have known in advance that they didn't have the votes and they could have put the vote off until uh, hopefully Steve Scalise is able to return next week from his cancer treatment and I hope uh, Congressman Norman is going to be able to give us an update on his health um, I would encourage everybody to be praying for uh, Congressman Scalise as you know he has a um, I believe it's a type of blood cancer that he's dealing with, and he is receiving treatments, and we need to keep him in our prayers. So we'll be talking about that here in just a few minutes as soon as Congressman Norman gives us a call. I wanted to get the show started before uh, he called in this morning. Uh, yesterday, I just got to tell you real quick, I was down in Columbia and just had an amazing thing happen. I mean, Randy White, who is a was a Dallas Cowboy uh, defensive lineman. He's the only defensive player, I think, to have won a co-MVP award for the Super Bowl. That would have been in Super Bowl twelve. Um, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's one of my favorite Dallas Cowboy guys, players of all time. Just an incredible defensive player. Um, he was in the Senate yesterday in South Carolina. He was here to be honored, recognized, um, I don't even know what the, the purpose was. I just had Mitch Prosser from uh, Palmetto Family. I was standing there talking to him. He said, oh, you know, there's some some football player who's in the Hall of Fame over here. When I found out it was Randy White, I I just I kind of had turned into an eight-year-old boy. I mean, I was transformed. I was back watching the Dallas Cowboys when I was a kid, which is when Randy White would have been playing. So – in any event, I went over and stood by. Mitch you know, kind of got me to go over and stand by the Senate door. And sure enough, in a few minutes, here comes Randy White. I mean, he walks out the door with his gold Hall of Fame jacket on, 
and his Super Bowl ring that, as my daughter said in a text thread when I put the picture up there, that looked like a belt buckle. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I embarrassed myself. He was very gracious, but, but I was, you know, I was kind of, you're, you're Randy White. I mean, I reached out and touched his arm and, <laughs> you know, just said, hey, can, can I get a picture? I mean, you're one of my favorite players. It was embarrassing. But like I said, he was very gracious. All right, we now welcome to the program this morning. Um, we're very happy to be able to have with us uh, Congressman Ralph Norman from here in the 5th District in South Carolina. Good morning, Congressman. Thanks for giving us a few minutes today. Yes, sir, Tony. Thank you. Yeah, um, Talk to us, to us a little bit about what happened yesterday with the Mayorkas vote because um, he was not impeached. The expectation was the votes would be there. It ended up being a tie vote, and, of course, because it was a tie vote, Blake Moore, Representative Moore from Utah, uh, he's vice chairman of the conference. He flipped to a no vote so they could bring the vote up again. So how did how did this unfold yesterday? Well, it, it shouldn't should not have unfolded the way it did. I mean, <clears throat> what you do is <clears throat> make sure that you have the votes before you bring it to the floor, and that just didn't happen. <clears throat> and you know, we all knew who was going to vote against it, right? But you, you know, you don't bring it up or until you have uh, your votes, and the speaker just didn't do that. And I hate, hate it for him. And, but I hate it for the body. It sends a message that I don't think the, 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 the we ought to be sending that we can't count votes and we can't make sure we have something that's pretty important for the country. Right. Well, and the same thing happened on this Israel aid package. And of course it really wasn't close. So I, I was there a political purpose or was some kind of statement where they trying to make some kind of statement by bringing that up for a vote? No, I, I think it's, well, I, to be honest with you, I have no idea what was going through the speaker's mind. We had a conference, a Republican conference earlier at nine o'clock, and I was one of the ones that stood up, stood up and said, please don't bring uh, the Israel package as much as I want to support Israel of course. without offsets. Right. And we're, we're digging up, we're in a hole so deep right now, and he just didn't do it. And so I have no idea why. Yeah. He didn't, you know, take more advice and, and bring it differently. Right. Well, it's disappointing, like you said, because it makes it look like the Republicans in the majority don't know what they're doing. And that's the last thing that we need right now um, and as we're heading into an election. Now, what do you think the chances are that uh, when Steve Scalise returns next week, if he does, um, that this is going to pass since they put it off? Is it with, Well, his vote will make the difference. It's one vote needed because it was tie vote, right? It will. I mean, yeah. it, I think it will pass, uh, assuming that's going to be by one vote. And, you know, you would think that particularly Mike Gallagher, we would hopefully he would get with him. I don't think there's any hope with Buck. I mean, he just he's locked right. in and right. McClintock was just on Fox. He's locked in. But hopefully Mike Gallagher would would be the one that could give us a little bit more leeway. But if not, right. it'll pass by one vote. Do you know how Steve Scalise is doing? Can we talk about his health just for, I mean, have you heard anything or talked to him about how his treatment's going? And I mean, is, is it a good chance he'll be able to come back next week? Oh yeah. They're flying him in now, whether it's just for the vote or not, I don't know. I, from, from all indications, and I talked to one of his lead uh, people on the floor that used to work with me for a long period of time. And he says he's doing well, holding up well with the, with the chemotherapy. And, Excellent. but it takes a toll. Anybody that's gone through that, it takes a toll on you and it's going to take him a while to get over. But Steve loves to, uh, loves to come back to the, 
body that he has done such a great job in. Well, uh, we are all going to pray for him, uh, Congressman. We'll, we'll be praying for him, the folks listening to this program, listening to the podcast, a uh, lot of believers, and we'll be lifting him up, as I know you will. Um, I know you don't have a lot of time this morning, so let me just ask you quickly about this uh, this package coming over from the Senate for border security. Uh, the Senate's pretty—I don't know that it's going to make it to the House now. It looks like it may die in the Senate, but if it gets to the House, there's no way it's going to make it. What What's wrong with this package? Well, first of all, this is just a this is a maneuver by the Democrats in the Senate to give Biden a talking point that they tried to pass a immigration bill that Republicans are just you know, will not accept. The bottom line is this administration is totally at fault for uh, and, and has everything, the, the, the power to reverse what he has done since he's been in office. You know, we put H.R. 2, which is is was a true bill that would stop the illegals coming across the border. Right. And he just he took executive action after executive action. And what this bill that Langford did, which surprises me that he would do this, but allow five thousand to come in per day, right. which would be one point eight million in addition to the twelve to fifteen million that we've got here now. Right. It provides uh, one, I think it's two point four legal fees for illegals. It, uh, it requires building houses and building, um, you know, structures for them. I mean, it, it's a complete joke. And we've got a national security issue right now. Right. And I was with a military guy last night in Intel. The fight is over here now. We're going to have a we're going to have a catastrophe with killings like we have never seen before. And this is from a lot of people who. Uh, know what's what's coming on uh, in this country. It will make 9/11 look like a small event, and I hate it. But that's that's what this president has done. He's got blood on his hands. Yep. And I hate it for the American people, but uh, what well, for all of us really? It's it's going to affect everybody, and it's coming sooner rather than later. Final question. Take about 30 seconds and tell me um, how do you think uh, Ambassador Haley is doing in South Carolina? Is she making any headway? Yes, she is. Nikki is working her uh, her head off. You know, I'm just, you know, she's got so much energy. She's got a vision for this country. And the fact that she's willing to stay in here against, she's getting a lot of criticism. And, and frankly, I, I had the criticism. I know she is giving the American people a choice and she's going to stay in it through Super Tuesday and probably beyond. She's making headway in South Carolina. And they know her there, and uh, you know it's. A, I'm just glad she's got the courage to do what she's doing. Yeah, Congressman, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. God bless you, sir. Appreciate Bye. your time. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, Tony. Thank to you. you. Bye. All right, Congressman Ralph Norman, Fifth District here in South Carolina. You heard of his thoughts about the failed vote yesterday for Mayorkas's um, impeachment. I I don't under, one of the main jobs, and I want to go back to something Congressman Norman said here because I think it it bears. Emphasis. One of the main jobs that the House Speaker has is to manage the floor. Now, he has floor managers, uh, and maybe they let him down. Uh, maybe they didn't get the vote count right. But you, just as if you're a defense attorney, um, you don't want to ask a question that you don't already know the answer to when you're in court. If you're going to be managing the United States House of Representatives in the majority, and you've got as thin a majority as Republicans have right now, you absolutely don't want to go uh, into a vote if, that you know that you're going to lose 
or that you, let's put it another way, that you know for sure that you're going to win. I mean, you should know before the votes are tallied. And that happened twice yesterday. So this is, you, you have the failure of, of the majority to be able to impeach Mayorkas, and then the Israel aid bail uh, bill failed, as you heard Congressman Norman talking about, because it didn't include any offsets. And there are plenty, thankfully, right now, there are budget hawks in the United States House of Representatives that are trying to make sure that we are able to take care of our debt, that we're not spending money that we don't have, because any money we spend right now is essentially money that we don't have when we're staring down the barrel of a $32 trillion debt. Uh, Representative Steve Womack, who's a Republican from Arkansas, this is according to Politico, said we need to know exactly where we are, and we need to be careful not to get out ahead of our skis. A, a typical leadership ally uh, he said this about leaders putting bills on the floor without knowing the outcome. Republicans have been building their case to impeach Mayorkas for months, advancing articles last week that accused him of breach of public trust and refusing to comply with the law. If they'd been successful, it would have been the first impeachment of a cabinet official since 1876. Um, and that's where we got into a, a comment from uh, Ralph Norman in this Politico article, he said, Ken Buck is leaving. I don't understand that. He could have done it just for the Republican Party. He noted that Democrats seem to stick together and, quote, we don't. Well, that's, uh, that, that's very true. Uh, it seems like that that's the way that works. Uh, Gallagher, uh, who ultimately voted no, signaled his concerns during a closed-door conference meeting earlier Tuesday when he said that the Mayorkas impeachment effort hadn't met the constitutional bar for impeachment, according to four Republicans in the meeting, Tuesday's failure also raises fresh, que fresh questions rather, about whether Republicans can take on their bigger impeachment goal, President Joe Biden. There were multiple signs of trouble heading into the Mayorkas vote that could be relevant for any going against Biden as well. So we'll just have to wait and see about that. I mean, I don't know how... I don't know how that's going to go um, with impeachment uh, for Biden. I, it's it's going to take, obviously, all of the Republicans are going to have to vote in favor of impeachment. Um, and if you see this with Mayorkas. I mean, I, they could lose two or three and not have the votes necessary. Let me just encourage you again at this point to remember Steve Scalise and to pray for him. You know, he has been through so many things. I mean, he was the, he was the most... He, he was shot at the uh, Republican-Democrat uh, softball game and uh, where the Republicans, I think, were uh, practicing and um, was just, I mean, it's a miracle that he survived his injuries from that. And so for him to have to go through that and, and he, stayed, he stayed in Congress, he was uh, in the mix for being Speaker of the House, just didn't quite have the support necessary to do that. And, um, and, and then now going through cancer treatment. So please remember him in your prayers and his family as well. Uh, all right, let's see. I wanted to talk about this court case. Big deal yesterday coming out. I mean, it's going to affect President Trump's run for the uh, White House or has the, the potential to do that because yesterday the D.C. Circuit Court struck down President Trump's claim of presidential immunity which opens the door for the federal January 6th election interference case to move forward. On Monday, we talked about the fact that Judge Tanya Chutkin removed the March 4 trial date from the calendar. That was a big win for President Trump. The fact that it did, you know, she said, look, 
until the Supreme Court or until some court rules, we're going to get that date off the calendar because we're going to wait for the ruling. She said it doesn't make any sense for us to be talking about going to trial when this immunity case could send the whole thing out the window. Both of Trump's arguments that he was making against being put on trial were rejected by the court. The first statement stated that he believed he had immunity from prosecution for anything he did while president of the United States. That is a huge question because and the issue of whether or not a president and the reason that he's making the argument, let me back up and say this. The reason he would make that argument is because obviously any administration could come after the previous administration. If you have, uh, just like you have the situation now where you have a, pre a Republican president who leaves office and then the Justice Department of the Democrat president, the opposite party, the opposing party, comes in and files charges for political purposes and without immunity, then those charges could be on the books. President Trump has asked, I think, or at least his attorneys have said, okay, what if President Trump is elected president? Can he go back and bring charges against President Obama for using drone strikes during the time that he was in the White House? And so there's a lot of issues being raised here, and I think it's pretty obvious that the Supreme Court is going to take this case. Now, they might not. We're going to talk about several scenarios here in just a minute that could unfold that would, and how each scenario would affect the election this year. Uh, concerning the presidential immunity claim, the court found that the public interest in pursuing the criminal case outweighed any harm that might be done to the office of the presidency by not allowing the president to claim full immunity. Now, I, I, well, let me, let me just quote the Wall Street Journal here. Specifically, the court said, we have balanced former President Trump's asserted interest in executive immunity against the vital public interest that favor allowing this prosecution to proceed, the opinion said. The judges said Trump's contention that he's entitled to categorical immunity is unsupported by precedent, history, or the text and structure of the Constitution, and the panel said it wasn't persuaded by Trump's argument that he, could, he couldn't face prosecution because he was impeached by the House but acquitted by the Senate for related conduct. Now, basically what he was saying is double jeopardy is here. because, and, But as we've talked about on this program plenty of times, uh, impeachment is a political remedy. Um, you, the standard should be that there should be criminal activity, so that the president broke the law in, in order for impeachment to go forward, but it doesn't have to be because it's, it's not a criminal case. It's a political case. Rejecting that double jeopardy argument, the D.C. Circuit panel said the weight of historical authority indicates that the framers intended for public officials to face ordinary criminal prosecution as well as impeachment. But I, I think the logic of the court here, where it said we've balanced former President Trump's asserted interest in executive immunity against the vital public interest that favor allowing this prosecution to proceed. Now, the public interest in allowing the prosecution to proceed, we're talking, again, we just have to bear in mind that this is a, an opposing political party is in the White House using their Justice Department to bring charges against the President of the United States when those charges were looked at and investigated by Congress 
through the process of impeachment, and whether you think that's double jeopardy or not, this is, this is still the United States Congress that, that impeached the president but failed in the Senate, which is where the trial takes place, essentially, failed to remove him from office. And so if the president doesn't have immunity while he's president, especially from things that are not direct um, or that they don't have direct evidence for, um, there have been several prosecutors that have stepped forward and said, look, if you're going to take, if you're going to charge a former president of the United States with a crime, you better have video. You better have, a, the, as, as the old statement says, a smoking gun. You better have your ducks in a row. You better have all of the evidence stacked up because the only reason that you would ever do this is because the overwhelming uh, weight of the evidence proves beyond really reasonable doubt that the president is guilty of some type of serious crime. And what we have here is uh, we don't have that in any of these cases that, I mean, the, the, probably the documents case, I'm going to go back to that. I still think that the documents case has the most evidence stacked against the president, but it's already been determined that case is not going to be heard until after the election. And so it, it really is not going to have a bearing. But this, Janu this, this election interference case related to January 6th and a run-up to January 6th that Jack Smith has been working overtime to get this in front of a jury before the election. This is the Democrats' play. This is where they want to take out Trump. They want to see him in jail. And, I mean, that's just a fact. That's, uh, Jack Smith wouldn't be per, uh, pushing so hard to get this on the docket and to have a decision before the election unless that was not part of the Democrats' plan here to disrupt the 2024 election and to tilt the field in favor of Biden. Um, and so it just, it, it is, I, I, I think, I, I mean, I agree fully with those who say that if the president of the United States commits a, an unmistakable crime, that's a serious crime, I think he has to be held accountable. But for cases like this that are clearly, I mean, I, I don't see anybody could look at any of these cases against the president and not determine to some degree that they're politically motivated. Maybe in, in whole, but even if they're politically motivated in part, you've got the person who one major political party wants to be their candidate for president, and you're willing to allow the Justice Department to go after him in an election year. Um, I don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do with immunity. I mean, I, I, I really don't, and I, I don't know if they're even going to take the case. Now, maybe, um, according to Norman Eisen, Matthew uh, Slegman, and Joshua Kolb, all, all at a website called Just Security, where they go through and they analyze cases and look at what's likely to come next after a court makes a decision. That's essentially what they do. Trump's maneuvers now depend on how the D.C. Circuit Court panel handled the issuance of the mandate. The panel withheld the mandate until February 12th. Now, that's Monday, February 12th. If Trump files an emergency application for a stay with the Supreme Court, then the mandate, that is the decision of the court, its enforcement, will be further withheld until the Supreme Court resolves the emergency application. 
However, the issuance of the mandate is not withheld if Trump files for uh, a petition for the rehearing of the full D.C. court. See, this was a three-judge panel that made this ruling, and they were unanimous. So Trump could appeal to the D.C. Circuit Court, but if he does, then the mandate, the ruling, is going to go into effect February 12th. It's not going to be held as, as a stay unless this goes to the Supreme Court. So the structure of the D.C. Circuit Court order on the mandate means that Trump will most likely file his emergency application on Monday, February 12th. He doesn't have really any incentive to file it before February 12th because the order extends the stay from the moment of his filing that petition um, until whenever the Supreme Court acts on it. So likely on, he may file it before the 12th, but certainly by then. Uh, he cannot file later than that because the district court, Judge Tanya Chutkin, at, at the trial court level, would take over jurisdiction of the case the moment that the mandate issues. So as soon as this, in other words, when this decision by the D.C. Circuit Court goes into effect, whenever that happens, this goes back to Tanya Chutkin, and there's going to be a date put back on the calendar. I mean, she could put March 4th back on there. Not likely because we're getting too close to that date. And if she does, then I think Trump's lawyers could file an appeal and probably get the date moved forward. But that would not be, of course, in the best interests of, of the president. Trump's emergency application to the Supreme Court will be handled by Circuit Justice Chief Justice John Roberts, because this is his, he's over the D.C. Circuit Court. Um, he, in other words, he gets all the cases that come from that court to the Supreme Court. And Justice Roberts is going to have three uh, options. He could deny the motion himself, which I don't think there's any way that's going to happen. He's not, this is too weighty. Um, there, uh, no way Roberts want this, wants this on him alone. Um, second thing he could do is refer it to the full court to act on without acting on it himself. Or he can impose an administrative stay while the court reviews the, the petition. A stay from the full court is the most likely outcome going forward here. Uh, ultimately, though, a majority of the justices, five, have to vote to resolve the stay issue. If the court grants a stay, it would remain in place throughout the uh, disposition of Trump's appeal to the Supreme Court. If the court denies the stay, that is the end of the process, or the end of if it denies the, um, the petition that's made to the court. If they deny it, that's it. Um, if they grant the uh, stay, then that means the stay is going to be in place until the court ultimately rules. And according to Politico, here are some of the potential scenarios for how the high court could handle Trump's problem that's about to arrive on its docket. I mean, what is it that they're likely to do, and how would it affect the election? The most significant victory here for Jack Smith would be a quick decision by the Supreme Court to simply decline to review the matter altogether. I just don't think, I do not think that that's going to happen. Because if that happens, that means uh, Tuesday's ruling would stand and the case could move forward. And like we said, it could be put back on the calendar pretty quickly. If the Supreme Court chooses to weigh in, the trial proceedings will certainly remain frozen in the interim, as we talked about a minute ago. It'll be, uh, they'll have a stay, the, uh, Trump will. Even a highly expedited, expedited, I should say, schedule at the Supreme Court would likely take at least a month or two. 
And if at the end of that period the high court were to reject Trump's immunity claim and allow the trial proceedings to resume, Chutkin can, uh, has assured Trump that she will give him additional time to prepare for a trial. So the bottom line, even if we get a speedy Supreme Court review, a trial probably couldn't begin until the summer at the earliest. And I don't think it I, I don't think then. I, I think early fall is going to be the earliest. Uh, because the trial itself is expected to last several months, it could easily br- brush up against the Republican National Convention in July, but that's only if it's on the fastest possible track. I just don't see that happening. Uh, it could brush up against g- the general election campaign or even election day. I mean, I think that's more likely. The Supreme Court takes this up, unless they put it on an expedited track, then it's going to be into the summer and and possibly early fall. And when I say early fall, I'm talking about September, before this thing goes to trial. I mean, it could could be really close. And the ordinary uh, course, if if it's just an ordinary case and if it was going to run its course, a case added to the court's docket at this point in the year would not be heard into the fall. If the justices choose that route, which they could, the D.C. Circuit's immunity ruling would likely remain on hold and the trial would stay frozen until then, all but ensuring that the election would occur before the immunity issue was resolved and before the election subversion trial could even begin. If that happens and Trump gets elected, he just, he, the whole thing goes away, uh, at least all of these charges. According to Sadie Gurman and Ryan Barber, writing for the Wall Street Journal, if Trump appeals the ruling to the Supreme Court, it'll bring to three the number of cases tied directly to uh, Trump, tying the justices to Trump, and that they would have to rule on before July. Uh, Just three cases that could affect the election. I mean, I, I had to remind myself, when, when the D.C. Circuit Court made this decision, I'm thinking, okay, um, this, is, this is the main case because the, the, the uh, January 6th obstruction case is the main case. But there, there's two other cases the court's looking at. The high court's considering, if you remember former president's appeal of, the Colo- of Colorado's ruling, that he's an insurrectionist. I mean, that's basically what the Colorado court said and he's unfit for public office. And in December, the justices said they'd consider whether prosecutors exceeded the scope of federal obstruction laws in hundreds of criminal cases relating to the Capitol attack and in Smith's case against Trump. So those, those, all three of those cases could affect what's going to happen with the election. And, I, I, you know, just from my observation of the court, and John Roberts' influence as Chief Justice, I don't think the court wants to be the decider. Yeah, I don't think the court wants to be the entity that makes a decision that could affect the outcome of the election before the election even takes place. I mean, that that it could throw the election into limbo. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what the court does with this stuff. I mean, if they... I, 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 yeah, whether they're going to expedite it, I, I think what the court would like, I think what the members of the court, and this is my speculation, but I think they would like to put this thing off, that they would like the whole thing to go away until we see what the election, what happens with the election, so that their decision doesn't have so much weight going into the election. 
But then again, the justices may say, well, wait a minute, we can't let the political calendar govern what we do as justices to make a decision about something that's either constitutional or not. So I, it's, it's going to be interesting, folks. I would just hang on. And I was asked a question last night. I spoke at North Greenville to a student group, and they asked me the question, why is Nikki Haley still in the race? Well, this is the answer. I mean, she's, she's still in the race. She's hanging around in the race getting money from billionaires that are keeping her in the race because of, the, of a scenario that could happen where President Trump is, goes to trial, is found guilty of something, his campaign could collapse. People are then, the Republican Party in desperation is going to turn around and say, okay, who can we run? And there would be Nikki Haley, who stayed in the race. And she would be, now would she get the nomination? Is it assured? I don't think so. I mean, even if all of the worst-case scenario, these cases end up going to court or the Supreme Court rules that uh, the president's an insurrectionist and, and can be taken off the ballot, I don't think. I think the chances of that are almost zero. But if any of these cases were to significantly impact Trump's campaign, I mean, I think uh, Ambassador Haley is hanging around and the people who are never Trumpers who really, really, really don't want Trump to be president are keeping her in the race with enough money to for a scenario just like I described where the possibility exists that the president could, uh, President Trump would not be eligible for some reason, either because uh, people began to turn away from him because of, of uh, uh, the court rules, he's found guilty of something, or in which I don't even know that that would cause, it wouldn't cause the base to abandon him, but it would be very difficult to get the independents and the people that are going to have to vote for him in order for him to be president should that scenario unfold. And I, I think that's what um, former governor and um, former ambassador Haley is waiting on. All right. Um, Iran-backed terrorist fired multiple ballistic missiles at an oil tanker in the Gulf of Aden. Now, this is according to the Daily Wire. These are the Houthis in Yemen. They fired six anti-ship ballistic missiles at cargo ships in the Red Sea this week, despite U.S. and U.K. conducting airstrikes against the group to stop the attacks. What did we say? When you telegraph the attacks, when you tell everybody you're coming, and they get everybody and everything out of the way— that's not sending a deterrent message. That's not going to keep the Houthis from continuing to strike. That's not going to make Iran tell them to stand down. They're, these, these, the, the proxies and probably Iran is going to have to be hit and hit hard in order for them to back down. And we haven't done that yet. doesn't matter that you run 85 different attacks, how many missiles you fire. It's what's being affected by the attacks. How, what kind of effect do they have? Are they undermining the ability of the Houthis to be able to conduct these attacks? Apparently not. U.S. Central Command said the attacks happened throughout the day on Tuesday as the terror group fired six anti-ship ballistic missiles into the Red Sea in the Gulf of Aden. Three of the a ASBMs were attempting to hit um, MV Star uh, Nasaya, a Marshall Island-flagged Greek-owned and operated bulk carrier, transiting the Gulf of Aden. 
At approximately 3.20 a.m., the ship reported an explosion near, uh, a re- a rather exp- uh, reported an explosion near the ship, causing minor damage but no injuries. At 2 p.m., another missile impacted the water near the ship with no effect. At 4.30 p.m., USS uh, Laboon DDG-58, operating near the vessel, intercepted and shot down a third anti-ship miss- uh, ballistic missile fired by the Iranian-backed Houthis in Yemen. Uh, the ship, the star Nasia, remains seaworthy and is continuing toward its destination. The statement said that the remaining AS- ASBMs that were fired were believed to be targeting the Barbados-flagged Morning Tide, a UK-owned cargo ship operating in the Southern Red Sea. The missiles landed near the ship but did not damage it. So this is, I mean, the precision strikes that were conducted by the British and Americans, which they used precision weapons in in these attacks that they carried out before the weekend, were intended to disrupt and degrade the capabilities of the Houthis to threaten global trade and the lives of innocent mariners and are in response to a series of illegal, dangerous, and destabilizing uh, Houthi actions since the previous coalition strikes on January 11th and 22nd including the January 27th attack that struck and set ablaze the Marshall Island-flagged oil tanker MV Marlin Luanda. The strike specifically targeted sites associated with the Houthis, deeply buried weapons storage facilities, missile systems and launchers, and air defense systems and radars. That's according to uh, the Defense Department. They put out a statement. Well, here's my statement. My statement is that, as, as I said before, it's obvious that the attacks that, that were, have been conducted by the United States and Great Britain are not having any effect or the effect that they want to have. Shipping is still being targeted. The Houthis still have capability. And they're going to continue to have that as long as the United States sends out the message that they're coming before they actually conduct the attacks. That, that is, I, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I just don't, I don't understand why... Well, we talked a little bit about why President Biden would do this. He's trying to not escalate things with Iran, but at the same time, the, it, things are escalating. Um, the Biden administration says they think that Iran has lost control of their proxies. Um, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that for one minute that these proxies would do anything without permission from their Iranian suppliers because they'd be cut off. And they, they wouldn't have any capability here. So it's just, you know, it, it, the, the, if we want to see the end of these attacks, we're going to have to conduct attacks that are effective against Iran and against the proxies that are not telegraphed. All right. Um, I used to joke uh, about, you probably have too, about what if we had an election and you had none of the above on the ballot and none of the above won the election? Well, it happened yesterday in Nevada because, as you know, Nevada um, wanted to move the Republican Party and Nevada wanted to keep its caucus uh, system, and the state voted to have a primary. And so we had a Republican primary that had Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and Tim Scott on the ballot, and then it also had none of these candidates. Now, it doesn't matter. This was a symbolic vote because there are not going to be any delegates awarded um, for any of these votes, because 
the, the actual primary is going to be a caucus that's going to take place on Thursday, and President Trump is the only one whose name is on the ballot for the caucus. Nikki Haley's name was on the ballot for the primary, along with Mike Pence and Tim Scott. So how did the vote break down yesterday? Well, 62.9% of the people who voted said none of these candidates. That's 42,534 votes. Nikki Haley came in second to none of these candidates. 30.8% of the vote, or 20,799. Pence got 2,700, and Tim Scott not got 917 votes. And so that's what happened. It, it has no meaning. Uh, there's, like I said, no delegates, but it's an embarrassment to me for the Republican Party, or at least for the state of Nevada, that you, you, it's, it's never a good thing when none of the above or none of these candidates is the overwhelming winner in a primary, even a primary that's symbolic. So what's going to happen on Thursday? Trump's going to get about 98% of the vote. I mean, there might be some other people that are that uh, caucus goers that show up and want to have somebody else. But um, Trump is ex- extremely popular in Nevada, and so he's going he's gonna to get all those delegates. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. All right. Um, it, this, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the you know, situation since I played the cut yesterday of President Biden talking about Francois Mitterrand as the president of France, who's been dead for about 25 years. Um, and the president keeps using his name. Obviously, it's a little bit of a touchy subject when it comes to the press secretary because she went off yesterday when a question was asked about this, um, uh, when she was asked about why would the president say that, um, and, and she, was, she was not happy to get the question. And so <laughs> she just she basically said she snapped at the person asking the question, and well, let me just let you hear the exchange. Here we go. And how's convinced the three quarters of voters were worried about his physical and mental health that he is okay, even though in Las Vegas he told a story about recently talking to a French president who died in 1996. When we see him, whether he's making a statement that that's far that far off the beaten path of sanity or not, it's obvious when he speaks that he doesn't need to be president of the United States, and that's why this is a legitimate question, and this is not going to fly. I mean, Corinne Jean uh, Pierre can can she can get away with this, I guess, for a little while, but eventually, you know, we've got what. 200 and some odd days left before the election. And there's no way that the response from the White House, when the president keeps turning out statements like this, and this is not the first time that he's referred to Mitterrand. If, if, if the president's going to continue to do this, it's going to become impossible for anybody to defend him um, and for the press secretary to just blow off a question like that. 
because it is a if if the American people didn't care, okay, but the American people do care, and they know that there's a problem, and the questions are going to continue to come whether or not the White House wants to deal with them or not. And this is going to be a major election question for Biden. I mean, I think, as I know that Trump is not popular, uh, as popular outside the Republican Party, obviously, as he is within the Republican Party. But when people look at the president, and it comes down to President Trump and President Biden, and and you look at, at Biden, if his con- condition continues to deteriorate, I, I just... I think that's going to be a major liability and a great big advantage for Trump. That There's no way Biden is going to do any kind of uh, in-depth interview. In fact, he turned down the Super Bowl interview, which has kind of become a tradition uh, for presidents that, that they do an interview associated with the Super Bowl. Biden's not going to do that. The campaign's not going to allow him to get anywhere near an interview that's that high profile that could have up to 118 million people watching because there's no way to know what he's going to say. And so now President Trump stepped in and said, look, I'll do the interview. Now, whether they're going to do that or not, I'm sure he'll be able to set something up. But it's a brilliant move by Trump politically to step in and say, well, wait a minute, I'm not afraid to talk to the American people. I talk to them all the time. And for President Biden to step back and for President Biden basically to say that they're the campaign to say they're not going to do any debates. Well, of course not, because the president could not handle that going up against President Trump or going up against anybody. I mean, it would become glaringly um, obvious that he doesn't have the, the mental capacity at this stage in his life to be president. It's already obvious, but it would really put it on display if you get into a major interview situation or you get into a major debate, which he's not going to allow to happen. All right, uh, President Trump um, had an interview this past week, which I thought was interesting in that he was asked about potential vice presidential candidates and he kind of, you know, he doesn't want to say, and he kind of talked around it, but he did land on mentioning two people. And so I wanted you to hear a little bit of that. You know, I called Tim Scott this so because a lot of people like Tim Scott. I called him and I said, you're a much better candidate that, for me than you are for yourself. When I watched Tim, he was fine. He was good, but he was very low-key, et cetera, et cetera. I watched him in the last week defending me and sticking up for me and fighting for me. I said, man... I said, you're a much better person for me than you are for yourself, because for himself, he was low-key. For me, he's been, he's been a real tiger. He's been incredible. And others have, too. Uh, so maybe it's Tim Scott. Well, it could, be, it could be a lot of people. But it was interesting. I was watching Tim. I've been watching, you know, for a while. I watched him campaign as a candidate. But I watched him over the last two weeks. Uh, as you know, he endorsed me, fully endorsed me, gave me a beautiful endorsement. And he has been really strong in terms of that. No, but that has nothing to do. I don't want anybody to take even any inference, but it's incredible. Uh, Christy Noem has been incredible fighting for me. She said, I'd never run against him because I can't beat him. That was a very nice thing to say. What was the story that your team reached out to RF? Okay, that's Maria Bartiromo that you were hearing. This was an interview that Trump gave on uh, Sunday Morning Futures uh, on Fox. And she, the question was about what about reaching out to uh, candidate 
uh, Kennedy, did, did you do that? And actually, Trump said, no, uh, we haven't reached out. That was an inc- inaccurate story that he was ever considered as a possible VP candidate. So I, does this mean anything? I, I think it's interesting. I've had several people tell me that one of the things that they want to hear about is the possibility of a running mate for President Trump. So here, first time he's done an interview like this, Maria Bartiromo sort of pressed him a little bit, and he came up with two names. Now, it could be that neither one of those will be um, the vice presidential candidate, but put that in the mix, that it's at least interesting that the president came up with those two names when he was pressed about it. All right, according to the Jerusalem Post, we've been talking about Iran today. We talked about uh, the actions of their proxies, that they haven't been deterred, at least so far, it doesn't appear, by American and British attacks on their positions. And then we get this from the Jerusalem Post. Iran is closer than ever to weaponizing uranium, building a nuclear bomb. And moreover, the Post says that it's using its remaining stock of enriched uranium, if that if it uses that, the country could have in total enough weapons-grade uranium for six weapons in one month. A new report from the Institute of Science and International Security is sounding the alarm on Iran's closeness to going nuclear, upgrading its threat level to extreme danger, which, by the way, is the highest of its six ratings for the first time since the group began following the Iranian nuclear program in the 1990s. Since 2022, the report says, Iran's breakout time has been zero. That is to say, it has more than enough highly enriched uranium to directly fashion a nuclear explosive. Uranium is not the only component required to fashion a nuclear weapon, though it is by far the hardest to come by. Quote, if Iran wanted to go to further enrich its 60% enriched uranium up to 90% weapons-grade uranium, it could do so quickly, according to the report. It can break out and produce enough weapons-grade enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon in a week. Now, that doesn't mean that they could deliver the weapon. In other words, um, manufacturing uh, some type of device that would be able to deliver a delivery system for the weapon itself could take longer, uh, the Post says. An accelerated program to develop a simple warhead delivered by ship or truck could be accomplished in about six months. So, in other words, they might not be able to take a nuclear warhead, stick it on top of a rocket, and fire it at Israel or at some other country in the Middle East or maybe even the United States, a U.S. air base. They they could take a nuclear weapon within six months and put it in a truck or put it on a ship and then detonate it somewhere around the world. Uh, you know, I, it, it's it's not a good situation. The Biden administration has totally blown any opportunity that was in place to inhibit Iran's nuclear program. In fact, the Obama administration basically laid out a red carpet for Iran in this this um, in the the agreement that that uh, Obama came up with that President Trump walked away from, rightly so. They came up with a with an agreement that just opened the door for the Iranians to be able to develop a nuclear weapon. It was just going to be a matter of time. Well, time has passed, and here we are. They're on the verge of being able to at least put a nuclear weapon, a warhead, within six months 
in a truck or a ship and put it somewhere around the world. And I think the danger or the possibility of them actually doing that is pretty high. Now, they don't want to be obliterated. They don't want to be, the mullahs don't want to lose power. And obviously, if they were to detonate a nuclear weapon somewhere in the world, they would be obliterated. I mean, the United States and its allies would take out the Iranian regime. But they're crazy. And so when we sit here and think logically about things, we need to remember the Iranians think ideologically. Maybe they don't care. Uh, or maybe they're to the point that they believe that now is the time to go after the great Satan, the United States, or to go after Israel. Um, but, and, and, I mean, with nuclear capability. So, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a dangerous world. And the, the mistakes of the Obama administration, in my view, that have been exacerbated by the, extake, uh, the mistakes of the Biden administration is allowing Iran to become a nuclear player in the world, a rogue state with proxies that are causing havoc around the world right now. Hezbollah, Hamas, the Houthis, all of these are terror groups sponsored by Iran that could be supplied by Iran with a portable nuclear weapon of some kind. And I, I mean, that would be a disaster that, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think we know what the ramifications of that would be, how far that would go. Um, all right, final story today. Uh, I just wanted to, to mention this. Um, well, first of all, let me say, because I said in the introduction this morning, we were going to talk a little bit about the fact that the South Carolina Senate set medical marijuana for special order yesterday. Uh, they're going to vote. They may vote today. The votes are there. The vote to set for special order in the Senate was 28 to 13, or 20. 26 to th it's either 28 or 26 to 13, um, which means that they have more than enough votes to pass um, Senator Davis's medical marijuana bill over to the House, and then we'll see what happens in the House. Um, I'm just going to reiterate at this point, the dangers of marijuana far outweigh the medicinal value. The medicinal, uh, medicinal value of marijuana is available in pill form, it does not have to be smoked, but of course you can't get high off the pills. And, and I mean, this is, no prescription can be written for medical marijuana. It has to be a card issued to be able to get a certain amount. And the end game here, just like it has been in every state, it will be in South Carolina to make recreational marijuana available. It's had a terrible effect wherever this has happened and it'll have a terrible effect on the state of South Carolina. I mean, we're South Carolina is a great place to live and raise a family. Uh, if we keep opening the door for things like marijuana, if we decide that we want to bring in casino gambling because it can bring a lot of money to the state, make a lot of people rich, it can also destroy a lot of lives and undermine the culture that we've come to love here in South Carolina in a major way. Um, people are coming here. I mean, you look at the number of people. South Carolina is, I think, third in the no in in, uh, in in they're in the top five. I know of states where people are moving to. People are not leaving South Carolina. They want to be here because of the culture, the state, and the society that we've been able to create. And we want to undermine that by opening the door to marijuana. 
We want to undermine that when the Sheriff's Association, SLED, South Carolina Medical Association, all these groups have said that this is a bad idea. And certainly law enforcement knows what comes with marijuana, and they see this as the opening to recreational marijuana, which is what it is. So this is, I, I mean, if you need to contact your senator this week, if you, if you, well, whether you agree or disagree, this vote is coming, and you need to let your senator know where you stand. But I, with all of the research that keeps coming out, that shows the danger of marijuana, particularly to young people, 25 and under. But across the spectrum, the carcinogens, the, all of the things that make this a terrible idea are being ignored, and the money, the possibility, and, and by the way, the state's not going to make any money off of medical marijuana. Uh, it's going to spend money. It's going to cost money to have a medical marijuana system in place. But you flip that over to recreational, and a lot of people get rich. And it's, um, it, I mean, it's, it, in my view, I, I, it's, it's just a bad thing all the way around. I, but we've been trying to stop this, um, and so far we've been able to hold it up um, in South Carolina, those that oppose. But I really, I think eventually it's going to come. Uh, but we need to hold it off as long as we can. And maybe defeat it, finally. All right, uh, real quick. Mother of a Michigan school shooter was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. This is according to Daily Wire. Um, the writer of the story is Zach Jewell. The mother of a teenager who gunned down four Oxford, Michigan high school students in November of 2021 was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter on Tuesday. She becomes the first parent in U.S. history to be convicted of crimes related to a mass school shooting carried out by her child. Now this is when, I mean, you, you have to stop and think about this. She was not present. She did not supply a weapon to her child. Now the father's been charged with um, his trial is coming up. He's, he has the same four counts of involuntary manslaughter and he did um, take, he, he bought a nine millimeter weapon for his son, and four days later, his son used it in the shooting. Uh, back to the story here by Daily Wire, the mother who, along with her husband and son, will not be named. Of course, Daily Wire doesn't name people that are convicted or accused of mass shootings, was convicted of four counts of involuntary manslaughter in the deaths of Oxford High School students, Madeline uh, uh, Baldwin, Tate Marie, um, ha uh, Hannah St. Juliana, and Justin Schilling, the, the Detroit Free Press reported, the jury began deliberations on Monday, continued for 11 hours before re releasing its verdict. verdict. Quote, I feel most of all that the cries have been heard. I feel that this verdict is going to echo throughout every household in the country, said Craig Schilling, whose son Justin was killed in the shooting. We all have work uh, now. We all know what we're to be held responsible for that we can be responsible for anything that we do. Prosecutors argued throughout the trial that the parents failed to give their troubled son the mental health help he needed. His father bought his son, who was 15 at the time, a 9mm handgun that he used in the deadly shooting. Four days later, the shooting's, uh, shooter's father, who is also charged with four counts, faces a separate trial in March. 
The mother's lawyer, Shannon Smith, argued that the school officials didn't appear very concerned about her son's mental state in their meeting on the day of the shooting, adding that if the mother had known the seriousness of her son's condition, she would have either brought him home uh, or brought him with her to work or gone home with him. See, one of the one of the main elements of the case is on the day of the shooting, the mother had a meeting with uh, school officials and said, look, I, I have to go to work. I can't take him. I, I can't remove him. And her defense is that they were not very adamant or they didn't seem overly concerned. They just simply expressed a concern. And yet that was enough for a jury to say, well, she should have anticipated and should have taken the child home. And if she had done that, this wouldn't have happened. The teenage shooter pleaded guilty to 24 counts, including first-degree premeditated murder and terrorism causing death. He was sentenced to life in parole, uh, excuse me, life in prison without parole in December. I mean, this is going to echo because now we have a precedent set, and I'm sure this ruling, this jury verdict is going to be appealed, but we have a precedent set that parents who fail to take action or when it's imminent or f- fail to be responsible in making sure that someone in their household is not guilty of murder or taking another life, that parent can be held accountable. So, I mean, it, there's going to be a lot to this. I mean, this is not going to be the end of this. Um, holding parents accountable for the sins of their children um, Some may think that that's a really good idea, but the other part of this says, how far does this go? I mean, once that door is open, then the question becomes, how far do you go in holding the parents accountable for the direct actions of their child? That question is going to have to be answered another time because we're out of control, out of time today. And we're um, also going to have to wait and see if this is appealed or what kind of effect it has on the uh, justice system going forward. Hope you've enjoyed the show today. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Congressman Ralph Norman. Hope you have a great day. Don't forget that the podcast will be available in about an hour. You can follow me for free and listen to the show anytime you want to. Please leave me a good review and pass along the idea that the podcast is good so others will listen if you enjoy it. See you in the morning.